for the rest of us, which I think turns out, I think to be the majority of us that are just confused about what's on the other side, scared, fearful, not conscious enough, et cetera, whatever it is, this group of us has to learn how to sustain healthy cross-racial dialogue with each other and not just focus on the solution because you can't get to the solution without sustaining a conversation about what's here right now. And if we lean in together around that and continue that conversation, our collective wisdom intelligence will help us to create something more healthy on the other side of the door. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dachis-Marmet. We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. Hello, and welcome to episode 137 of the Art of Living Well podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, we have a couple of quick announcements. So it's already late August, and you know what that means. Summer is winding down and fall is right around the corner, which means that our next quarterly seven-day functional medicine liver detox is approaching. So are you ready to join our supportive community and take your health to the next level? The past few months of summer have been amazing. We've had great weather here in Minnesota. I hope you have too, wherever you are in the world and have been able to take some time to be with family and friends and in more social settings, in barbecues and just enjoying life and maybe staying up later than you're used to and breaking out, breaking from some of your typical routines that you already have. So this fall is a perfect time to Reset. Reset your liver, reset your healthy habits that you have, and get ready for an amazing end of 2022. This community-based program will really allow you to tune into your body's unique needs and walk away with a set of tools and a better understanding of your own body. We would absolutely love to have you join our supportive community. We start on Sunday, September 18th, but you can begin whenever it works with your schedule And just click the link in the show notes. You can message us with any questions. You will feel so proud of yourself for this accomplishment in just seven days. And then the final quick update is we want you guys to come on to our show for this new episode format that we have called a health transformation audit. And this is where we bring our community members on to help you identify what's holding you back from your ideal health and wellness And we'll analyze with you together so that you can walk away at the end of this 15 minutes with a tangible action step to guide you on your journey to find your own art of living well. As integrative health practitioners and health coaches, we absolutely love doing this kind of work with you. You can click the link in our show notes to sign up. You can email us at theartoflivingwellpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out episodes 121, 126. 130 and 133 for our previously dropped health transformation audits to get a sense for what this experience would be like for you. We look forward to having you on our show. 
And now let's welcome today's amazing guest, Tony Hudson. So Tony Hudson is the president and founder of Racially Conscious Collaboration, where he helps leaders and organizations explore how race matters and assist them in becoming racially conscious, inclusive organizations. Tony has such an amazing background, which you're going to hear a bit on the episode today. Before he founded Racially Conscious Collaboration, Tony spent the last 12 years successfully ushering organizations through racial consciousness development and organizational change. He was the head principal where his school ranked 99th percentile in Minnesota for the rate at which they were eliminating racial disparities. He worked for the Osseo School District in Minnesota as the director of equity, and then ultimately founded Racially Conscious Collaboration, which is a research-based tool being successfully organized across the U.S. designed to sustain healthy cross-racial dialogue. This was such a powerful conversation. In this episode, you're going to hear Tony's remarkable journey from his youth in Omaha, Nebraska, which included belonging to a nationally organized gang during high school to becoming a school principal and ultimately founding Racially Conscious Collaboration. He shares how in his personal and his professional experiences, how the education system often makes assumptions about students based on the color of their skin as to what their intellectual capacity is. And he offers ways that teachers and educators can look beyond what a traditional school expects for a student's trajectory so that they can be supported to help them excel in their own way. We talk about why diversity and inclusion efforts often fail and how the program that he's created in his work with organizations is so powerful. Tony gets into how our emotions play a role in how we can become more racially conscious and share simple tips and strategies to normalize our emotions so that we can have a healthy dialogue about race, both in your social circles and also in organizations. We hope today's episode inspires and motivates you to lean in, to lean in and become more racially conscious and create a more humane and just world. And with that, let's dive right into this enlightening conversation with Tony Hudson. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Shield Your Body. Shield Your Body is a company that makes products to shield your body against electromagnetic frequency, or EMF radiation, from modern technology. Did you know that all modern technology is a source of EMF radiation? Cell phones, laptops, Wi-Fi, even your refrigerator is a source of EMF radiation. And each year, we are exposed to more and more EMFs. There are literally thousands of high-quality, peer-reviewed scientific studies demonstrating clear links between exposure to EMF radiation and a wide range of negative health effects, from anxiety and infertility to sleep disruption and cancer. Fortunately, there are easy ways that you can reduce your EMF exposure right now that cost you absolutely nothing. After reading the Shield Your Body Guide, I stopped using my AirPods something I used daily for hours sometimes and have switched back to the old school wired headphones. And for me, after reading the Shield Your Body Guide, I really put my foot down and insisted that my kids keep their cell phones and their laptops out of their bedrooms at night while they were sleeping. And I've been working on Jordan as well. And I think after reading the guide and listening to our podcast, he has finally agreed to do that. So download your copy of a free guide at shieldyourbody.com to start improving your health right now. 
And be sure to check out our episode number 123 with R. Blank, CEO of Shield Your Body. Hi, Tony. Um, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. I love how we were connected through our mutual good friend, Heather. And I knew the first time that she told me about what you're doing, and then we ultimately spoke that we had to have you as a guest on our show to share all the important work that you are doing to really successfully help organizations equip themselves with tools to advance towards systemic racial equity transformation, and also the work that you've done previously in the education systems. And, you know, I this episode could not be being recorded or you know, this conversation could not be happening at a more opportune time because as we record this, our country has just experienced yet another devastating and racially motivated hate crime where we had 10 people murdered, you know, outside of Buffalo, New York, all, almost all of them were black. So I'm glad that you're with us today. And so Tony, everyone has a story and we would love for you to hear your journey of how you went from being a member of a nationally organized gang during high school and you know, hanging out with drug dealer friends to becoming a school principal, a director of equity, helping organizations through racial consciousness development, and then ultimately founding racially conscious collaboration. Yeah, well, one, thank you for having me here and shout out to Heather for telling you all um, about me. Um, <clears throat> the best way I think I like to exist and expand in the world in uh, my mission to organize racial consciousness, just meaning more people and resources and organizations and communities aligned to accelerate racial equity. The best way is when um, other people who have, you know, high stakes lives that they are living, look at the way that we do our work. Uh, and the way that we show up in our core values and say, um, we think they're credible and we want to refer them to our friends, to our colleagues, to other organizations, et cetera. And so I'm just humbled by the recommendation um, to get into spaces to know various people um, that I haven't met before. So I'm happy to be here on the Art of Living Well podcast with you too. Um, so thank you. Um, and hello to everyone listening. So how did I get here? That's a really good question. Um <clears throat> Let me say, first off, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. I want everyone listening to pause. There are Black people there. <laughs> we, are just, we are just all on one side of the city in North Omaha, right? Shout out to North Omaha. Um, that side of the city is a Black community. Um, I wouldn't say it's 100% Black people, but at time it felt, for times it felt like that growing up. On the south side of the city, there is a segment of the city that's predominantly brown people. Um, and shout out to South Omaha as well. So that's where I grew up. Um, Omaha overall is one of the, if not the most racially, racially segregated places that I've ever been to. So Omaha uh, really instigated my growth to where I am right now. It was very easy to see race and racial division there. You didn't have to guess. As a kid, though, what was different about me is I asked the questions why. I wanted to know why, you know, when we went downtown with all of the big, you know, buildings down there and the folks who came out in suits, why were they white? And in our neighborhood where there really wasn't um, a good grocery store and a lot of resources were just sucked out by redlining, frankly, where lines were drawn around neighborhoods of color nationally, and the resources were sucked out of them and realtors said, this isn't a good place to go. And it had a long-term economic impact. So as a kid, I asked why, and I'm glad I asked why, because growing up, had I not had my mother, who was my first racial equity champion, 
I would have thought that our neighborhood looked the way that it did because we didn't want a good place to live. And so because she told me early on, you live in a world that was really struggling to love Black people and really struggling to love brown people and really struggling to love indigenous people. And don't you ever see yourself that way? It's not about you. (laughs) You didn't suck the resources out of North Omaha. That was the banks. That was the realtors. That was a concerted effort, unfortunately, by um, the government to do so. Um, There's a wonderful video that's a little older now that I still suggest because it's one of the best I've ever seen tracking what I'm telling you now. Um, It's called Race, the Power of an Illusion. You can get it at www.pbs.org backslash race. There's actually a whole website that goes with it. And you didn't hear this from me, but you can actually get portions off of it on YouTube. In particular, the part I'm talking about now is called The House We Live In. Anyway, it explains the redlining that I'm talking about that contributed to our neighborhood looking the way that it did. So as a result, there just wasn't a ton of opportunities um, in my neighborhood for young people growing up. I had a lot of love in my community, um, but also, um, you know, youth jobs wasn't really there. A lot of opportunity wasn't there. And so I always was the person I am today. I just grew up around a number of young people that thought the best way to survive, frankly, in an area that's the poorest area in the state by design um, was to do activities that would get themselves in trouble, including, for example, selling selling marijuana, which in many places is legal today. So that's interesting. But the kids I grew up with were brilliant, absolutely brilliant, um, all the way around. But they also encountered educational systems that struggled and how to love the Black children that I grew up with. And so they were met with multiple systems that failed them. I happened to be a kid that played football. I actually hated football. I wanted to be Magic Johnson growing up, but I started growing horizontally around ninth grade instead of vertically. And so my coaches and parents had to have some conversations with me about my future. (laughs) So I didn't really love football, but it was like, all right, well, that's going to get me in college because I was a dad. I was involved in gangs. So it's a tough decisions. Uh, My mom actually did not allow me to attend my high school graduation because she thought I'd be shot walking walking across the stage. I lived in a place where historically most people, including early on white immigrants as well, and neighborhoods and situations where the resources were snatched out tend to get involved in gangs, et cetera. So um, I went to college. When I went to college, I went to school uh, at Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa. I didn't want to go there, but I wanted to break the cycle of what I saw in my neighborhood and the football scholarship was the best way to do that. I only played football for a year. Um, I was really good at it. I got a starting position. But one of the things that bothered me, and it's just part of who I am, is on the side of our helmets, and this was early on, I graduated high school in 1995. So I was playing football in 1996 at Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa. The side of our helmets and for the mascot was this big racist Indian chief head. And it just drove me berserks. (laughs) I couldn't stand it. And I tolerated it for quite a while until there was a fraternity on campus. And I don't remember their name. And I'm glad I don't because it's not about one individual group. This was a systemic thing. They wrote this article, the nastiest article, uh, essentially saying that the indigenous people of Sioux City should thank the college for having this, you know, mascot that just completely marginalized indigenous people. And it had a succession of Indian headdresses. And at the end was this morning side cap, like with a feather in it. 
Um, it put me over the top and I looked around and none of the other athletes were saying anything. No one on campus was saying anything. And so being who I am, <laughs> I actually joined the school newspaper. Um, they didn't have any people of color on it. And I specifically wrote an article calling out the college. This was the first time that I learned about the predictable things that happen when you try to challenge racism in the world or marginalization or oppression. What was predictable was the school pushed back on me. The community pushed back on me uh, in some very troubling ways for a young person, um, barely into barely 20 years old yet. I don't think I was 20 yet. I think I was 19, in fact. But it taught me a lot. Um, some of the athletes that were friends of mine kind of distanced themselves from me. Um, folks of color and white people on, on the teams. Um administrators, teachers who I thought should be there to support me were grilling me about it. There were die inward messages in my dorm room door, KKK stickers popping up. And I thought, oh, this is what happens when you challenge some of the things I've seen growing up. So a lot of those things really constructed who I, who I am. And I survived that and I learned a lot and it really continued to set me on this path of always being curious um, about racism and about systems and organizations. Fast forward in becoming a principal sometime uh, later after being inspired by, the, inspired by the Children's Defense Fund, I used to uh, be involved in something called Freedom Schools. You can go to the Children's Defense Fund website and learn about those support Freedom Schools. They're the most amazing thing ever. Um, but after that, I was really clear about what I needed to do career-wise. So I became a principal, not because I wanted to be a career principal, because I thought public education was the best way for me to understand how does systemic racism persist? And how can we interrupt it? So by the time I was done being a principal, we were in the 99th percentile in the state for the rate at which we're eliminating racial disparities. We were a top school in our growth towards um, diminishing racial disparities. Um, and I learned a lot there, um, a lot of support, but also a lot of people struggled with seeing me hire, you know, staff of color, with seeing black and brown children succeed. I thought someone would throw a parade, but it was the absolute opposite, in fact. At best, there was silence around it, but other times there was this awkward um, racism of pushback, like, you know, you know, why, why do we have to talk about race here at our school? Why can't we just teach? And it's like, well, because our results say that we persistently are not getting it done with, you know, children of color. So I learned a lot there. And then later on, um, I became the director of equity for that school district and got some amazing work done with some amazing people, teachers. Um, anti-racist teachers, principal leaders, community members. And um, after doing that work, it really just inspired me about what's possible as opposed to what's not possible. So I'm one of those people that I've worked with enough organizations as a leader. And then now for the last decade, I've been on the road traveling across the country and working some virtually internationally with organizations that I've coached from being unclear about how to work towards racial equity to actually producing racial, racially equitable results, becoming places where white people, people of color, indigenous people can actually succeed well. Um, so when I think about those results and those places and some of the partners that I have now and their commitment to this work, um, while some people may be discouraged thinking, how are we gonna get this done? For me, I'm going, no, I've seen what's possible. There are people who really wanna do this work um, it's challenging at times, um, but I'm that person that's more so like, how can we get this done as opposed to if? 
So I know we can have work towards um, a more true racial democracy in the society, but it's just going to take a different kind of commitment. So that's pretty much how I got here. And so now I'm the president and founder of Racially Conscious Collaboration and just continuing to do that work, helping organizations, leaders, et cetera, uh, to work towards racial equity um, systemically as whole organizations. And I love it. It's, it's, it's my calling. It's the mission of our organization. Um, and I just feel blessed to actually have that as a calling and, and have some experience doing well at it. What an amazing journey you've had so far. And like, it sounds like everything that's happened to you or that you've experienced and lived has kind of, you know, you're, it sounds like you're in the perfect role for what you've done so far in your past. And um, I'm sorry that, you know, you had some of those experiences in college. That's horrible. And I just, it bothers me so much. And I, I guess one question I have for you is like, you know, I, I understand you're working with organizations, but what, what can we do as a collective, you know, just society of people or the individual, like what, what are some of the steps that we can yeah. all take to, you know, move this process forward, be more educated, um, have more conversation. I don't know. What, yeah, what do you absolutely. suggest? Absolutely. Well, first off, I think, the number one reason why we persistently have been um, failing at working towards full humanity is our inability to sustain healthy cross-racial dialogue. It's a challenge. Um, I'll give you an example. Sometimes even when folks talk about diversity, which is a, 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 a um, quote-unquote nice way to get out of talking about race, because you can talk about race and sexual orientation. You can talk about race and gender. You can talk about race and um but an example of this, there's an organization, a professional sports team, and it was after the um, murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin um, in assistance with those other officers over there in one of my former communities that I lived in um, for a short time as a little kid before we moved back to Omaha after coming here. But at any rate, um, this professional sports team, because all of these organizations after the murder of George Floyd felt they needed to do something, right? So this organization said they were going to have a day to talk about diversity in their professional sports realm. And I won't name, you know, who it is. So it's a US national professional sports team. So their day of diversity, they were gonna have a panel. And on the panel, they specifically wanted to focus on women. And I thought this is fantastic, right? Because part of it I've learned in the last five or six years, as well as becoming racially conscious, I have to work on male dominance as well. Um, and it's been some work. And so I thought this is going to be good for me to listen to. And so I look at the panel and the panel is definitely all women, but it's definitely all women who are white <laughs> and definitely not women who are women of color, <laughs> definitely not women um, who have disabilities and are women of color, et cetera. It's all women who are white. And this, from their perspective, was their, quote unquote, um, diversity day. So from my perspective, our inability to hold healthy cross-racial dialogue contributes to us just continuing to do what we're most comfortable with. Here's the situation I think we're all in that we have in common. It's like we all have walked up to this door 
And we don't know what's on the other side of the door, right? On this side of the door is a society where we have not been able to figure out how to have full humanity. And racial disparities, the predictable way that we can see that white tends to be on top and black and indigenous tends to be on bottom and brown in the middle, et cetera. There's a predictability to that on this side of the door and it's killing us. In fact, the FBI director for the last three years has said the number one threat to our domestic safety is um, white supremacy. We just haven't been able to figure it out, right? Not all of us, but as a culture, haven't been able to. So I feel like we're all walking up to this door and you don't know what's on the other side. So it's okay emotionally to have fear. It's okay intellectually to just be uncertain, right? All these things. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of times it comes down to fear because we all have been so successful in a society that's dominant, right? (laughs) that has deep inhumanities. How have we all been so successful in a society with so much inhumanity? So, of course, there may be some fear of the unknown. That's okay. That's not a problem. The challenge is there's far too many of us who decided the possibility of doing the work to step through that door and imagine a more humane society is just too much. And so you have a certain part of our population that has turned around and went back the other way and decided on inhumanity. These are the folks who are at school board meetings, clapping down the school board members and claiming that, you know, talking about race is going to harm their children's health, et cetera. Right. The possibility of full humanity and sharing power with each other is just too overwhelming for some folks. And this is not excusing them or anything. I'm saying they've made a decision. For the rest of us, which I think turns out, I think, to be the majority of us that are just confused about what's on the other side, scared, fearful, not conscious enough, et cetera, whatever it is, this group of us has to learn how to sustain healthy cross-racial dialogue with each other and not just focus on the solution because you can't get to the solution without sustaining a conversation about what's here right now. And if we lean in together around that and continue that conversation, our collective wisdom intelligence will help us to create something more healthy on the other side of the door. So I'm speaking to the folks who are still on the fence about how to do this, right? And so with that group, for me, when we're in our foundation seminar, Foundations of Racially Conscious Collaboration, one of the first things we talk about is attending to emotion. This is part of the actual tool, research-based tool that we have that I designed in the company around sustaining healthy cross-racial dialogue. Same name as the company, the Racially Conscious Collaboration Tool. But the first part of that tool is called Attend to Emotion. What does it say? It says that all of us, as we are considering, right, what we're going to do, how we're going to be around this conversation about race, emotionally first have a response. Our emotions are our most sophisticated response as human beings. Just think about it. So often you see something, hear something, and automatically your face is scrunched up, or you know you inside in your body, you have a physical reaction emotionally, and you might have to like hide it on your face because you don't want to overwhelm the person that you just absolutely have a stank face about whatever it is that they said. 
But the reason why those emotions happen so quickly, we don't have to think about it is because they're they're sitting on top of a bunch of crystallized experiences in our life. So our emotions are really sophisticated because we don't have to think about them. They just happen. Think about if you have kids and, you know, we're over at Lake, you know, Harriet one time, this other little kid pushed my son in the water. What happened? Emotions right away. Right. So this happens around race as well. So the first place that we go around when you hear the word race, me saying it on this podcast, or racism, or white supremacy, or et cetera, that they've been saying on the news, there's an emotional response. So the first order of business is for us to normalize the emotions. What happens at work? Think about this. When someone cries, if you've cried at work, what's the first thing that happens? Sorry, 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 apologizing. That tells me a lot about that organization and our culture. We've normed that you can't bring your full self and your emotional self to the table. And so when I'm flying back from work and I call him Airplane Joe in the book that I'm writing, right, inevitably ask me what I'm doing, even though my head is on the side of the window and I have a little bit of slobber coming out and you can tell I'm tired, but still wants to ask you, you know, that's the culture on the plane, the protocol. You start to ask, what do you do? I'm sitting there the whole time like, oh my gosh, do I have the energy to tell him? Because I know what's going to happen next. And so inevitably Airplane Joe um, lectures me about how it's not about race, right? And I'm thinking you're an actuarian. I don't lecture you about banking and mathematics, but everyone (laughs) knows race. And I know they know it really well because he has so much to say, even though it's unconscious. What happened was he had an emotional reaction. And so my first order of business is not to own his work. It's not to carry his work. We got to stop trying to convince people of stuff, right? Get out of the convincing business. Get out of arguing people down with statistics. Get out of that and get into just holding the mirror back up so people can do their work so you don't have to carry it. And you do your work and carry your work. And so I asked Airplane Joe, what happened emotionally for you when I said that I focus on race? Right. So there's a lot more to this conversation and our tool starts to get into, okay, what kinds of things do we need to talk about? Not telling you specifically what, but just how do I meet myself at the stage of development that I'm at? How do I tell where someone else is and meet us where we are at the edge of where we are and push each other into deeper conversations? But we can't go deeper in these conversations about race until we build the emotional muscle. And so when I think about, you know, the art of living well and some of you know, the topics you have on around health, this is a health problem for us, that we don't have the emotional muscle to stay at the table in conversations about race. And that's where we got to practice first, normalizing. All right, I feel embarrassed, or I feel ashamed, or I feel angry, or et cetera. Well, what's behind that? What comes up for me about race? What about with the other person? What's coming up for you emotionally right now that you had that response? That's what we got to begin to normalize. There's other work to do, but to me, that's the first step. Well, and I, I, I love what you're doing, what you're saying. And it really gets to something Marty and I talk a lot with our guests is like getting to the underlying root cause of the emotion, of the behavior, whatever it is. Because like you said, it's a buildup of experiences that you've had throughout your life. And not just things that you've done, but just experiences you've had observing others in your culture. And now we're to the point where adults, or a lot of us, and a lot of our listeners And we don't even realize it. And I think the events over the last two years have helped elevate it. And as I think, you know, it's literally almost the two-year anniversary of George George Floyd's murder as we record this 
yeah. converse, conversation. And I think there was a lot that happened. I mean, it was, I was reading books and listening to podcasts and doing all these things to help right. educate myself early on. Right. And then I feel like, you know, people get back into their lives and the pandemic sort of slows down and then you, you know, yeah. It, 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 but we need to be having these conversations. And so yeah. obviously you're doing a lot of work in organizations. Uh-huh. Um, but like, kind of like Marnie said, for the, for the average listener, mm-hmm. you know, what, else, you know, how do we, how do we start to have more of those difficult conversations to talk about the emotions just in our everyday life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. So first, before we proceed, um, I just want to send some love um, to the community of Buffalo. Um, um, after, uh, after that young person uh, decided to become a terrorist, a racial terrorist, a white supremacist terrorist, and take the lives of um, all of those Black folks that were just going to the only grocery store in their community, going back to redlining, right? The only grocery store in their community. There were grandmothers going there um, to get food. There were aunties. There were folks who were stopping off at the store before going to volunteer at the shelter, um, you know, every week. These were mothers and fathers and people uh, that had people that loved them. And what I want to offer is... um, Somebody had this boy as a parent. Somebody had this boy who became a terrorist, a white supremacist terrorist, at some point in time in their classroom. Um, Someone interacted with him in law enforcement. Um, People heard him in conversations early on and didn't intervene. And what I want to offer is, it's quite likely that those folks that heard him beginning to say things as a child that were racist um, or just were inhumane, they had an emotional response and that's okay, but it's what they sent after the emotional response. And if they sent silence after frustration with something that he said, we still got what we got with him. If they sent, you know, um, an argument instead of healthy cross-racial dialogue with him in sixth grade or something, when they felt embarrassed by something he said, we still got what we got. The emotions aren't the, aren't the problem. We need to normalize those. It's just, can we slow it down and do what I call to your question about where do we start? Where we start is, it's not just about um, that boy. And I call him a boy because he is a boy. And I wish someone would have called Trayvon Martin, a boy. He was not a young man. We, we like to adultify the uh, young people of color who get murdered by um, unarmed vigilantes due to racism. We like to adultify them. Trayvon Martin was a boy, okay? Um, like my son, a boy. And so I call this fellow a boy because he is. He's 18 years old. But he's a boy who decided to become a terrorist, right? A white supremacist terrorist. But I think about the people who encountered him and what happened for them emotionally and their racism or in responding to his racism or his inhumane behavior or his mental health challenges, et cetera. And 
I think in normalizing the emotional part, it's just to say when race comes up, you have an emotional response. And I've learned we're really not good at naming the emotions, right? Um, I spent a bunch of time with a large group of therapists out of New York in a particular um, uh, uh, theory of practice and therapy, a particular approach. And they would laugh at themselves and we laughed about it, about how when I would ask them, hey, here's some something that happened around race. What comes up for you emotionally? They wouldn't be able to name emotions. And we laughed about it because we were like, do we have to bring out one of those charts that's like in a nurse's <laughs> office in elementary school? <laughs> like the happy, mad, angry, sad face, yeah. et cetera. And we almost did. Like, honestly, mm-hmm. there were people, actually one of the therapists was sending some chart that she had because we, they kept struggling to name emotion. Wow. So we're in a society really that just begs us to be inhumane, right? To cover up this response. But then what we do feel around race, like, you know, something happened around race at work or something or something happened and you didn't talk about it. You knew there needed to be a conversation, et cetera. There's an emotion there. Maybe it's happy, sad, angry, embarrassment, anxiety, et cetera. And here's here's what happens next. Speaking of the what can we do? You know, when you experience big emotions, I learned from spending time. Uh, with those therapists. That's part of why I love what I'm doing. Like, I, I don't go to a particular field. My passion is systems change and anti-racism. So I get to, you know, be all over the place, right? So I'm hanging out with these therapists. And one of the things they said to me is, Tony, is human beings don't like to be highly animated or overstimulated for too long. Even if it's excitement or even if it's like the opposite, like anger or something or sadness, like we don't like to be over animated for too long. So we are going to make moves to bring ourselves down, right? To an equilibrium we can handle, to a place that we can handle. And so the question just is, when I experience an emotion around race, particularly, for example, if someone says, oh, well, that thing you did is racist, or that person said is racist, no one wants to be called racist, right? Or, or if you're a person of color, someone says you missed something racially, or you're perpetuating racism, like no one wants that to happen in any way. And so the emotions come. And I bet as the listeners are hearing this now, right? Just think about someone saying you did something racist or you should have said something when something happened racially. And so dot, dot, dot. The big emotions. What I say is we're going to make moves to bring ourselves down to a place we can handle it. That's not a problem. But the question is, are we making self-care moves? Are we making self-destructive moves? Right? You caught that? So... Something happens around race. You got big emotions. Maybe you're angry or embarrassed or, you know, anxiety comes in in some way, what have you. Big emotions. The emotions aren't a problem. Naming them aren't a problem. The challenge is whether you're going to make self-care moves to bring yourself down to a place where you can stay at the table in a conversation or you're going to make self-destructive moves. Okay. Self-care moves to me, speaking of the art of living well, are about in the moment for sometimes for me, it's deep belly breathing. I think you all had someone on recently. I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but I saw the title around breathing. It's not rocket science. I spent a lot of time with a uh, major healthcare organization. Uh, it's an association with 6,000 members um, in a particular lane of healthcare. And we talk about it like all the time. Like if you're not breathing, you're not living. So I know for me, when I get big emotions around things, sometimes I have very short breaths, very short breaths. And so good breathing, 
good deep belly breathing. All right, sounds silly, but pushing your belly button out. When you're inhaling, pulling it back to your spine. When you're exhaling, sometimes I'm doing this in the moment when I'm coaching people or when Airplane Joe is trying to tell me that race doesn't matter because I'm frustrated. I don't need to lie like I'm not. I'm not being a good coach just because I'm never frustrated. That's not true. I'm frustrated when Airplane Joe is trying to lecture me about how racism works, but I'm doing deep breathing, et cetera. Just I'm thinking about things like my core values, about full humanity, Right. One of my core values is love. Doesn't mean I need to like airplane Joe, but it's, you know, I don't like my own kids sometimes, but it's the love that keeps me parenting them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so, and things like, you know, choosing to be curious. Um, One of the more challenging places that I sharpen my sword in this conversation is with my dad. Me and my dad are constantly disagreeing around race. We are both black males, but he believes some things about race that I don't believe. And when I have big motions around something that he says and I choose self-destructive moves, I'm arguing, I'm debating, I'm trying to convince him of something, I'm lecturing, I'm et cetera. And my dad is a like genius when it comes to like debating and arguing and making points. And so it's always this win-lose thing that's self-destructive. A lot of us think we got to convince somebody of something. That's not it. We just need to reveal our work to each other. So when I'm making the self-care moves, I'm doing things like saying to him, what you're saying right now is frustrating to me. And here's why around race for me. But tell me some more about what's coming up for you emotionally around what you're saying. And he'll say things like, you know, I'm frustrated or I'm angry. Right. Well, tell me some more about what you're upset about. Go on his experience right? As a 60-something-year-old Black man, he doesn't have a narrative of Black men doing what I do and living (laughs) and still having employment and et cetera. And so all those things, when I'm choosing the self-care moves, curiosity, taking, doing my own work on myself, breathing, exercise, all these things, journaling, reflection, always engaging in self-care around the stress of race, then I'm able to be in a space of curiosity with him. And then I find out things that go, oh, we don't agree, but I get it. He's fearful that I'm going to mess stuff up for my kids, right? If I keep talking about race and making, if white people get uncomfortable, right? <laughs> this kind of thing. So again, I think the first steps is for us to just normalize that we are the most sophisticated emo- uh, response to race is our emotions. And when we have big emotional responses around race, Slow it down for a minute and think about how can we engage in some of the self-care moves. Breathing, deciding to be curious, honoring that that's another human being in front of you, even if you disagree. Staying and sharing perspectives and being curious as opposed to debating some of these self-destructive moves. So we just got to choose self-care moves instead of self-destructive moves. And that could sound simple, but I'm just you know, telling you these are the things that we talk to folks about when we bring them into our world, into racially conscious collaboration, into our community. And that's why we designed the tool not to just get anti-racist work done. Those who are wise about the long march to racial justice and freedom has to be have to be as wise about the self-care it is going to take to get there. Okay. And so that's why we've worked that into our tool. And that's why I don't let any executive knock me off my square with that and say, oh, that's soft stuff. Let's just get to Let's just get to the policy development. Well, let me tell you what happens. I can, I do coach executives and organizations through policy change and et cetera. And when I come back the next month to see their receipts and they haven't done it, it's because someone pushed back about the work and then they got scared. And they don't have the emotional muscle and practice of building emotional muscle 
um, enough to stay at the table in the conversation, even when there's predictable pushback. So this is not just soft work, these first steps of self-care. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I have a question. I love what you've said so far, and it, it makes so much sense in theory. I'm wondering... Practically speaking, you you mentioned like airplane. I know. Jump. Do you like that? Do you so, like that name, or is that like I, I do. <laughs> I, I think it's perfect. I think it's perfect. So let's say you're back on the plane with airplane oh, Joe. You put me back on there. All right. <laughs> yeah, but right. he's he's saying some things that are you know getting your blood going, your heart's beating faster, you're getting frustrated. You don't know this guy. You know he's airplane Joe. How do you? Do you engage with him because do you engage with him? Do you just let him talk and you just, you know, employ self-care and calm yourself down and have empathy for him and where he's at in his journey? Or do you, you know, you mentioned that you, you don't want to try convincing someone Mm -hmm. or debating with them because maybe that's more self-destructive. Yeah. I, I wasn't yeah, totally clear yeah. on that. So, so how do you work with someone that maybe, you know, n- not your dad, because obviously you have a different relationship with a family member, but someone in the outside world that you butt heads with, or you, you know, really disagree with, how do you take steps to move forward in a way that's beneficial for both yeah. people to grow? Yeah, it's a great question, right? So here's the thing, the research on this, it's called racial identity development research. And what I want to be clear with you about is your question is kind of connected to a question I get all the time. It's a pain point in organizations. And their pain point is there are people all over the place in this conversation. There are people all the way over here who don't think race matters and are really going to get ticked off with the art of living well. So y'all should get ready <laughs> about why don't we just go back to talking about breathing? Why did you bring this <laughs> black fellow on and talk about race? Right. <clears throat> why did you do that? And um, so you got folks in that space. There's also folks in the middle who believe that race matters, but their conclusion is that um, the reason why we got to talk about this is because Tony and other folks of color won't stop talking about it. So that's blamed for people of color. But there's also folks in that space who believe that race matters and are just um, stuck. Um, not resistant to the work, but just stuck. Not quite sure where to go. And still building, um, don't know to build the emotional capacity to go deeper. Then there's folks who build the emotional muscle to go deeper, but they're just not sure what to do. But they're in collaboration, hence the name um, in our company, racial conscious collaboration and collaboration with others to figure out a direction forward. Because let's just be real, there is no place in the United States that's eliminated racism. Doesn't exist. So we're gonna have to develop it, right? And I believe we can. But there's folks in that space. Then there's folks in the space who are anti-racist. They've been at this a while. They travel with some folks who are working on this. They've had some failures. They've had some successes. They're learning around those. They're leaning into what works. They're keeping race on the table. They're able to talk about race and socioeconomic status, race and gender. Like they're not in competing victimization trying to pit race and poverty against each other, et cetera. So there's a big spectrum of where folks are. The key in what we teach people, and you aren't going to learn this by osmosis, okay? I'm just going to say it. You got to go get yourself trained and coached. And hopefully you run into a coach, 
um, or facilitator or organization that knows how to keep race on the table, knows how to keep wellness on the table at the same time, and knows how to keep systems change, community change, group change, uh, organizational change on the table. And that's what we pride ourselves in. But there's no way around it. You got to learn some stuff. And you ain't just going to get it reading a book in isolation, but you should read the book. You ain't going to get it just by Googling, but guess what? You can Google a lot of stuff to make yourself more racially conscious. This is why I don't believe when people are like, well, I just don't know what to do. You can Google. (laughs) (laughs) You You can actually Google much of the stuff anyway. Um, But people are in different spaces. And so that research talks about if you're going to have a tool like the one that we designed, if you're going to engage in these conversations, you have to find a way to, one, do your own work of assessing your own racial readiness and having a framework to do that. Where am I? You know, there's so many people who want to hand out Robin DiAngelo's um, White Fragility book. Everyone is not ready for that. (laughs) I'm not handing the white fragility book to someone who's still struggling with whether race matters. The research on that and my own personal practice and professional practice tell me I'm going to peek that person out. They're just going to blow up. It's going to be too much and they're going to fight (laughs) or they're going to withdraw, right? Their ego is just going to get too involved in that in a way that's not productive. And so we have to find out a way to assess our own racial readiness and that of others. So part of what we did in designing a racially conscious collaboration tool is as well as it's into emotion has three stages. And these three stages essentially go from, hey, there are people pre-stage one that don't think race matters, to this all the way to people in stage three of our tool who are in an anti-racist perspective. I have to meet you where you are and at the top edge of where you are. I used to be an elementary school principal. What you wanna to do to help children grow in reading, turns out it works in professional development or our race too is you want to meet them at the edge of their development. It stretches them. If you meet people below where their development is, they actually lose faster. Children actually go backward faster in their reading development. If you give them books and put things in front of them, that are too easy for them to do. If you put something in front of them that's way too hard to do, then they struggle as well. So you want to meet them where they are, but at the top of where they are and stretch them. Turns out that developmental perspective is also behind how we should approach people in this conversation about rice. So Airplane Joe clearly is like pre-stage one in our tool. Like he doesn't want to talk about race, but I can't meet him at don't talk about race because that's too disrespectful to humanity. That's too steep of a trajectory and where we need to go. So where I'm meeting him is just getting a sense of what's coming up for you about race. What, what, what emotionally was triggering for you? What, what, what happened to you emotionally when you heard me say that I talk about, et cetera? So the thing is, to your question, Marnie, is we have to get better with meeting ourselves and other people where they are, but at the top of our development and keeping ourselves stretched. I love that. And I love that you're, like you said, meeting them where they're at, because that's something Marnie and I talk about all the time. And you're really going through almost like the stages of change with where yes. someone is. And if someone, like you said, is way over here and doesn't recognize that it's even an issue or, or, or worse, you can't have the same conversation with them as you're going to have with someone who's in the middle. So, yeah, um, no, it's, you're going to you're going to it's, it's just going to blow up. But let me be really clear, though. We can never meet people at race doesn't matter. That is developmentally too low for anyone. So we at least have to meet each other at, hey, Race matters. And in fact, it matters so much. It's persistent and pervasive in our society, race and racism. But I just want to know, 
what is your experience and what comes up for you about rice? We need to get out of having to be having to carry 10,000 books and data with us and getting ourselves geared and armored up to convince someone of something. I was in a seminar yesterday with um, uh, Ramsey County Attorney's Office. And um, uh, then the seminar before that was uh, Cook County Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. And both of them, there was an interesting thing that happened where folks were um, affirming that really the best thing is you knowing your own story around race. You don't need to come armored up with data, armored up with all kind of books. Still read the books, read the data. But the best thing I can do is say, if you you can do is say, if you are a white woman who grew up in wherever you grew up in Midwestern United States, here is my experience. And here's what I'm noticing about race. And then I get to talk about what my experience is and we get to build the emotional muscle to stay in the conversation. But we also have to learn some stuff and get coached and trained too, because it's not just going to come by osmosis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that your approach is just so unique from when I was in the corporate world pre my current career, it was like, you know, I, I remember there being a diversity leader and there being diversity meetings and it was like a check the very much. And this was, I mean, I'm going back 15 I'm going back a long time, right? Yeah, no, you're talking uh, about today too. Trust me, they're still doing the same thing. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of what I wonder a little bit. And it's interesting because I was just yesterday reading a Wall Street Journal article and it was talking, there was a whole section about hybrid workplace. And it said, I think of the statistic was like 50% of black workers said they prefer to work remotely over like 39% of white workers. Uh-huh. And so it's still, you know, and I'm reading it and I'm like, gosh, I thought in the years that I've been gone from corporate, we would have made a little more progress. And clearly what you're doing is just, I love that the, the emotional aspect I think is so key and what really differentiates the work you're doing yeah. in organizations from, yeah. you know, I don't want the old school approach, if you will. Well, you know. Oh, I was just going to say, and also, if I'm understanding you right, when you're working with or dealing with people that, like you said, aren't even on the line, they're just not even, they don't even think race is an issue. You're trying to understand where they're coming from, why they're, Uh why their mentality is in that space, which I also think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's an offer there to engage in healthy cross-racial dialogue. And I'm going to tell you, maybe it's because people actually contact us to work with us, but I find it publicly too, um, that nine, eight times out of 10 or more folks are willing to engage in some healthy cross-racial dialogue with me. They don't, they maybe don't know how to do that, but I have the tools to bring to the table and folks will see a difference in the way the conversation goes. There are some times where folks aren't willing to do that. When I was in college, the people who put die inward, you know, messages on my door and all of that, they're not my audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the folks who match those pictures from, you know, who are against um, school integration and, and, <clears throat> and they were throwing things at those first children and young people of color who integrated those schools and they had all those nasty messages. If you put those side by side with what's happening in our school board meetings, et cetera, today, it's the same attitude. Um, and it's not different from this whole white replacement theory stuff. 
Um, so this whole anti-critical race theory is white replacement theory, right? People might not just have the language for that, but it's the same theory. Now you might not, you know, you know, I don't want to associate you with going in and, you know, shooting up a bunch of people in a store, but the core theory behind it is the same, that if white people share power with people of color, then everything's going to fall apart. So protect, protect, protect. Listen, if that's what you've decided and then your actions are to be shouting somebody down and, you know, destroying people's lives and creating all these false narratives, um, then you're probably not my audience because you've just decided on inhumanity, right? Um, and, it, and it's getting really tough. You know, I work with a school district where um, a some parents of a group of white children have communicated this foolishness to them. And they've been running through the hallways, making monkey noises at children of color and disrupting things, et cetera. Um, it's just heart. It's absolutely heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, so but what I will say is eight out of the ten, eight out of ten of the people that I talk to are willing to stay at the table and healthy cross-racial dialogue, even if they disagree. When I'm in seminar with folks, I say to them, I don't get an A because we're all agreeing that race matters. In fact, the way that I get an A is if you can say to me, Tony, it's really frustrating that we're focusing so much on race. I really feel scared like this is going to harm my child or me or et cetera. Oh, really? Okay. Well, tell me some more about that. What, what's, what's behind that? All right. Are you open to another perspective? These kind of conversations, um, healthy cross-racial dialogue doesn't mean agreeing all the time, right? And so I just feel very blessed and privileged in that um, while there, it is real that too many of us um, have allowed fear to take over and then have crafted narratives that just aren't true about engaging in healthy cross-racial dialogue. For me, the vast majority of people that I'm around every day are people who really want to have this conversation. And over the last decade, I've worked with thousands of people in rooms having this conversation. And I'm excited about that. And so um, I feel like that's a privilege because for the vast majority of us, you won't see that. You'll just see what's on the news. You'll just see, you know, all the horrible things that happen. But I've worked with people from Fort Worth, Texas to Corvallis, Oregon, all the way over to, um, you know, um, Vermont, um, you know, where they tried to offer me free skiing if I'd move there um, to do the work there. And I said, said to them, you obviously have not been listening to the conversation as a black man. I'm not <laughs> like, I don't even ski. I'm like, you get that but, um, yeah, I just appreciate all the folks across the U S and glo some globally now, um, that we've done this work with who are just stumbling forward in it or just stumbling forward in it. So I'm encouraged by that. Well, that, that's great. Um, you've shared so much today. You've peppered in so many tips and strategies for everyone to consider and start to have those dialogues and, you know, talk about emotions and have these conversations. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It's, just, it's even more relevant. Um, so, Tony, where can people find you? Where can people, if they want to work with you, yeah. learn more about the work you're doing? I know you periodically sure. hold some free webinars for the general public. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we, you know, hold some free webinars from time to time. I say sponsored by Racially Conscious Collaboration. 
just because of our mission. Our mission is to organize racial consciousness. We are not here to play it small. This is a calling for me. I know I don't have that long on this planet. Most of us don't, right? But in that time, let's use it well. Let's live well. So the art of living well for me is inviting people into this conversation because I'm so encouraged by the people who are in it um, who didn't think they could make change racially and are, you know? And so from time to time, we have um, webinars that we open up to the public. The way you can track those is follow me on Instagram at Racially Conscious Collaboration. So same name of the co it's a company. It's just at Racially Conscious Collaboration. Follow me on Instagram. Um, just like I said, you know, here offering tips, you know, articles, education, et cetera. We are just freely kind of educating and sharing things with the public just about every day, just about every day. Um, and <clears throat> if you follow us there, you'll likely find, you know, an article. You'll likely find a resource. And from time to time, you'll see, hey, we're having a new webinar. Come join us, um, et cetera. Also, if you want to talk to us directly uh, to get some coaching from us, um, we do executive and leadership coaching, some life coaching with, racially with the Racially Conscious Collaboration tool. Um, we also work with whole organizations, um, our core partners. We're in relationship with them over two or three years where we're doing whole systems change around racial equity. Um, so work with individuals, groups, organizations, et cetera. Um, and we're not in one particular field. Wherever there are systems, organizations, and race, we're there. Okay. And so you can uh, contact us on our website at www.racially-conscious-collaboration.com. And we'll link all of that up so in the same, show notes too. Yep. Same name as the company. So that's how you can get in um, contact with us um, or to follow us on Instagram. Um, we do a really good job on Instagram of just staying tapped into what's happening uh, in the world and um, bringing that back to you and then causing some discussion around it um, and keeping race on the table in a healthy way. Yeah. And, you know, Tony, something you said earlier about like, oh, our listeners are not, maybe not wanting to hear this. And I started thinking about what our mission is for this podcast. And part of the mission is to challenge the status quo and get outside of your comfort zone. And so this conversation was so important and it's, it really just incorporates everything that we're doing on this show. So yeah. I, yeah. We, we know our listeners got a lot out of this and we'll have the tools, some of the tools and resources, like you said, to go forward and do better. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, glad I could help. Glad to be on here. I love the title in particular. And I would say if you're going to live well, Moving forward, we got to find a way to sustain healthy cross-racial dialogue, and we are um, called to help you do that. And we have a community of folks who love to collaborate with you, so uh, join us. Well, and thank you so much for the work you're doing and thank you. for thank allowing you. us to have this conversation because it, it's sometimes we don't know where to go. Like, I don't know where to go to have these conversations, so I really appreciate what you're doing. And I'm excited to dive in deeper. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, awesome. Tony. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, 
leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at the Art of Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook, where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well. Thank you.